0: Welcome to the History of Science Society's Centennial Podcast, a podcast to celebrate the fact that the HSS is soon to turn 100. This is produced in collaboration with the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Matt Schindel. I'm the Secretary of the History of Science Society, and I'm going to be hosting today's episode, History of Science at the Movies. So we're now in the dog days of summer. Here in the Washington, D.C. area, where I'm recording, we're supposed to hit 98 degrees Fahrenheit today. It's the perfect weather to retreat into an air-conditioned theater to see a movie. So go get your popcorn because as everyone knows, there's a new history of science biopic conquering the box office as we speak, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. So we've decided to use this as an occasion to convene a film forum to discuss Barbie's physicist counterpart along with three other films. There are four of us here today, I'm joined by Ying Chen, David Hecht, and Amit Prasad. We all watched the four films that we're going to discuss today, and each of us has written a review of one of the films that will appear in the HSS newsletter. To kick things off, I want to turn things over to the three historians joining me in this discussion and have them each introduce themselves in the film they reviewed.
1: Well, in, in Chinese, there's a saying, zhuan yu, you throw out the brick to attract the jade. So I'll be happy to be the brick in this uh, conversation. Uh, I'm Yang Chun. I'm a research scholar in law and fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center, where I my research focuses on the development of science and technology in China and U.S.-China relations. Though before my current position, I was trained as a particle physicist and worked on the Large Hadron Collider for over a decade. And I should also say that I feel a particular affinity to the theme of the of the film because. Uh, I was born and raised in China, and both my undergraduate alma mater and my graduate school alma mater here at the University of Chicago played instrumental roles in their country's nuclear and space program. Uh, the film I reviewed is uh, Qian Xuesen on uh, Shen Chen, and that was released in 2012. And Qian Xuesen, surname Chen, um, is actually someone who shares a lot of biographical similarities with Oppenheimer. They're about the same age, Chen being several years younger. They uh, they both left their home country to for graduate school. In Chen's in case, United. United States at MIT and Caltech. They both uh, were drawn to leftist, uh, left-wing ideas and social activities in their youth, and they both played an instrumental role in building weapons of mass destruction for their birth country. Though in Chen's case, he did it for two countries: United States at first, and then the People's Republic of China. And both Chen and Oppenheimer lost their security clearances in the 1950s, during uh, because of alleged uncommunist sympathies and other un- ac- accusations. And the film Chen uh, shui lived. A Remarkably long life to 98 years, and he died in 2009. And the film came out three years later and mostly focuses on two decades of Chan's career from about 1947 to 1966. Starting from when Chan was a tenured young professor at MIT, visiting his birth country of China, then under nationalist rule for the first time since he left. And then he married this young opera singer named Jiang Ying in Shanghai and came back to MIT. And then the film follows Chan as he moved across the country to to Caltech to head the new Jet Propulsion Center and then to the McCarthy era, um, accusations and where he lost his security clearance was placed on uh, briefly immigration detention. And he was in this kind of dilemma where he was both barred from leaving the U.S. for um, having knowledge that is too dangerous and also assumed to be uh, too disloyal to stay in the U.S. And, and then uh, in 1955, he was finally allowed to return to his birth country and then led the country's fledgling missile program. And the film culminates in 1966 with the successful detonation of China's first nuclear warhead. Uh, That was an atomic bomb um, attached to a missile that Qian led the design of. And so that is the film. I will not spoil too much of the plot, and we can have more discussions about the themes and the topics later.
2: My name is David Hecht. I Teaching the history department at Bowdoin College um, up in Maine, so we're at least a little cooler than things um, in D.C. at the moment. And I specialize in nuclear history. My first book was actually on Robert Oppenheimer. I wrote about his cultural image um, so after World War II. I'm currently writing on a book on the sort of an environmental history of the nuclear age. So I think the the broad outlines of Oppenheimer's life are familiar to many of us and you know but so i'll talk about how what the movie does with that life right it start it has a it has a kind of roughly chronological sort of like progression that he um that it starts with oppenheimer the young man going through a sort of pre-war science which bleeds into um his sort of pre-war radical politics which for him those social worlds are very connected. Then it moves to Los Alamos. And I think it's important, as I imagine we'll discuss later, say that it's moving to Los Alamos only. We don't really get a glimpse of the whole Manhattan project here, just the part that Oppenheimer was involved in. We then get, get some notes about the his sort of like late 40s, early 50s sort of scientific policy making and status as a celebrity public intellectual. Um, Before moving on to sort of like a much longer section on his 1954 security hearing. Now, I've presented it in a little bit more of a sort of neat linear way than the movie. Than the movie actually sort of feels like because it being Christopher Nolan, he does a lot of cross cutting back and forth between different timelines, and ultimately frames the whole thing through Oppenheimer's various security struggles with security regimes of various kinds. And so I'll leave it at that, except I'll just sort of say that that somewhat has the effect of making the film arguably more about politics
3: than science. My name is Amit Prasad, and I teach in the School of History and Sociology at Georgia Institute of Technology. And my research focuses on global and post-colonial aspects of science, technology, and medicine, I did a book on the transnational histories of MRI in the US, uh, Britain and India. And one of the big concerns for me has always been, how do we understand connected histories while emphasizing the role that uh, national and uh, West, non-West and other boundaries uh, play out. And uh, in light of that, I just complete, I mean, there's a new book of mine, which has just come out. Uh, which is called Science Studies Meets Colonialism, wherein I look at the interplay of science and colonial uh, to describe the history of the present. Now, the film that I reviewed, uh, Serious Men, it is a Hindi-language satirical film based on the fictional uh, novel by the same name that has received many awards. So unlike the other three films uh, that we are discussing today, this is a fictional film, but it plays very nicely into the concerns that, as we'll see later, uh, that are displayed in these other films, because it also discusses similar issues. Now, in, specifically, there have been many discussions on the role of race, class, caste, gender, and other social hierarchies in science, particularly in the fields of history and sociology of science and technology. And these exclusions form a very important part of practice of science, but very often, as we saw in Oppenheimer too, these may not be overtly or even otherwise discussed. The interesting aspect of this film is that it takes us into the intertwined life worlds of science, scientist, and that of caste and class, quite literally to the everyday life, and satirizes the social hierarchies, in particular, how caste is inscribed and also erased in science and society in India. The film, through its portrayal portrayal of two science geniuses, one who is a well-established astronomer at a very well-established National Institute of Science, and the other who is the son of the personal assistant of this astronomer, the sun, here is being projected as a science genius. The astronomer is a Brahmin, that is, he belongs to a so-called upper caste, while the personal assistant and his son are Dalits, a so-called lower caste, and they, in stark contrast to the social and class status of the astronomer, live in a slum. The film highlights the value of science genius in society, like just showing how powerful role they play and how much accepted they are, but also unravels it by focusing on fraud in the actions of both of these. And yet, as the film shows, and I won't go into uh, the particular details of the plot as much. As the film shows, the life trajectories of the two end up very differently. The upper caste Brahmin astronomer is reinstated in his position in spite of his fraud, and the son of the personal
0: assistant loses everything. And as I said before, I'm Matt Schindel. In addition to being the History of Science Society secretary, I'm a curator at the National Air and Space Museum, where I curate our collection related to uh, Earth and planetary science. And uh, the movie I reviewed is Goodnight, Oppie, which is about the Opportunity rover, which was one of a set of two rovers, Opportunity and Spirit, that were sent to Mars back in 2004, and Opportunity managed to live past its 90-day projected mission time or, or lifetime and ended up lasting uh, close to 15 years uh, operating on the surface of Mars and explored far more of the surface than it had been expected to when the mission was first planned. And this uh, documentary really focuses on that kind of miracle of technology and also the people who worked with that rover uh, over time, both in developing it and building it, but then also in, in operating it over that long time frame. And when you have a, a planetary science mission that lasts that long, you have more than one generation, typically, of scientists and engineers who then get to uh, work on that as some of the senior folks retire or other folks move on to other opportunities with new missions. So, you know, the, the film is a great glimpse into the sort of the microcosm, that small world of, of what happens during a planetary science mission at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I would uh, say that it has a few weaknesses in that it does focus so closely on one small set of individuals and doesn't really look beyond the walls of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to find what the significance is of, of planetary exploration or how it fits into a longer history of international competition and cooperation in space and, of course, the military origins of the technologies that make space exploration possible. But I'll leave it at that so we can get to uh, our discussion. I'm going to throw the first question out there, which is I I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, the way that these films present their heroes, whether it's sort of hagiographic in that it um, focuses on sort of the great man and his great accomplishments, as in the film that Yang Yang reviewed, or if it sort of treats them as flawed and tragic individuals the way that Oppenheimer does. Um, So, you know, what are our thoughts on that? Does anyone want to jump in?
1: Actually, I was going to follow up on Matt's uh, comment that I should also mention that Chen shui was a founding member of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech when its uh, focus was on, on rocketry research with the military um, use before it became a civilian agency with NASA. And so, so with his, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I, I did my undergraduate studies at the University of Science and Technology of China, and Chen, after he returned to China in 1955, was a founding member of my undergraduate alma mater as well when it was founded in 1958. So I kind of, like, grew up with the legends of Chien and and also, like, growing up in in China in in the late 90s or early 2000s, there was this idea of, like... Um, science, uh, the highest calling of a science is science and technology in, in, defense of the country or for the state. And, and, and so Qian was, was this kind of heroic figure that, that was less of a person than a symbol. And, and so, so with that understanding, there is this, a historical or political context. On the film, Qian Xuesen should be viewed, first of all, as it is fulfilling of political mission and an educational mission before it's fulfilling an artistic mission. And and in that sense, I think uh, one of the uh Hints is from what its film director said during the premiere, that for someone like Chen, we can only yangshi, right? we can only look up to him. And then of course, that is no way to really make a movie, let alone some uh, a movie that is as complicated as Qian. And, and I think part of the artistic failure of the uh, movie, and I should also emphasize here that I do not want to attribute the film's artistic failure to only the political constraints around it, that is trying to portray Chen as this uh, heroic figure and and this idealistic mission of science, that is science and technology in defense of the nation and the state. Um, Because uh, it is a contemporary film made in 2012, and in a way, it is also trying to inject some contemporary sensibilities into a bygone era uh, of the the Mao era, the, the revolutionary fervor and the political excesses. In trying to tone down these elements, it is also becoming a somewhat inauthentic or even ambiguous portrayal of someone who is actually embodies a lot of the complexities in terms of allegiance, in terms of their um, their relationship with their birth country and their adopted home and with the different changes in different changes in government.
0: And David, Oppenheimer is a very different movie in the way that it treats its main central character. Talk a little bit about, you know, some of what you said in your review about this complicated portrayal of Oppenheimer and how it fits in with other efforts to either, you know, make him a symbol of a particular thing or complicate him in different ways. Yeah, I,
2: I can answer that. And then I also, I'm, I have a, well, interesting thought about hagiography with relation to Oppie too, that hopefully I hope we can get to, but um, the, um, I, I think the thing about Oppenheimer that, is so interesting and is why, like I said, in my review, I mean, we have novels about him. We have a bunch of private films. We have documentaries, we have an opera, right? I mean, Nolan is not the first person to, to attempt this. And I think that one of the sort of interesting things about him as an artistic subject is that he's so ambiguous, right? That you can, you can, you can, you can find almost anything you want in him, right? You can find, you know, he's, well-read and quotable and eloquent enough that you can find things that make him seem like he has a conscience about, you know, the work that he did at Los Alamos and he, and he deeply regrets that. Or you can point to how he silenced some of his colleagues who had ethical concerns and then jumped fairly quickly into war work after Hiroshima um, and helped build up a nuclear arsenal and you can make him sort of emblematic of the early arms race, right? And I think that... Because, you know, the, 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 there, there's, there's an interesting moment in the movie after, um, I don't have the exact quote, where the Edward Teller character is sort of like chatting with Oppenheimer after the war. And he's saying that basically, like, it, it's essentially like calling him out for his own lack of a center, saying like, who are you? What do you think? Do you even know? You know, and I think I mean I think a lot of biographers of Oppenheimer would agree that the answer to that is no. Oppenheimer probably didn't have one settled sense of self or character. But that makes him that allows someone that that, that just I think that's what makes him this interesting artistic subject. Is he is he a hero? Is he a tragic hero? Is he a fallen hero? Is he a sort of a villain? You can tell almost any story you want with him.
0: Yeah, I think I remember um in Sam Schwaber's treatment of, of Oppenheimer he basically comes out and says that Oppenheimer had no strong sense of self and that's why he was able to shape himself to fit different moments, different roles, different politics at different times but ultimately right. that shape shifting gets him in trouble right exactly i think the, I, I agree with that 100% so yeah, yeah. So. and I mean, the the characters in in your movie are all very flawed but have great aspirations and goals and so how does that sort of speak to, you know, the the larger social context or story that, that this uh, film is trying to present?
3: So first of all, I would like to situate it, situate the, the the idea of hegeography in like science, history of science, as you talked about, to this longer history. So if we look at, and this I mentioned in my review as well, that uh, if we see the hegemony of the West it, it is to quite an extent through science. And initially it was expressed more as a dominance, but then it was accepted cutting across different parts of the world. And if you see post-independent, like be it India, or you see in the context of in a different way in China or elsewhere in the world too. And I showed this in my book as well. Uh, and some historians have argued like this, that science becomes a reason of the state and science is so profoundly like in our system as such through different ways. I found, I've been working on for the last two years on COVID misinformation. And I, so the the usual argument is that how they were anti-science. But what I found was the opposite, that it was the credibility of the science was being used to even spread misinformation. I did not find one single misinformation or conspiracy spreader who called himself, herself or themselves anti-science. So what I see here is the hagiography has to be situated in this much broader historical social discourse that is actually quite unchallenged, including at the time of COVID when it was called that, okay, science is falling apart. And in the film that I reviewed, interesting part is that So one of the the senior scientists, the astronomer, he behaves like this science genius and he's portrayed like that. And the, the younger kid, the son of the assistant, he is wanted to become that science genius. And the moment he's portrayed like that, he's being accepted by like all over by the politicians. He is being quoted by the educational institutions and all. The interesting part what they do here is they bring in the notion of fraud here. And this is hopefully we get uh, something to discuss even further, that how, like if you look at the moral dilemmas with Oppenheimer uh, also, or the ambiguity that we are talking of, in this case, there is an explicit aspect of fraud, but it unravels in very different way for the upper caste person, as opposed to the lower caste, this thing, which is there. So what it starts showing us window into that, even when we discuss like the science at the broader level, perhaps we should be aware of, or we should put our eyes or attention to who are being erased or who is not being talked about. Does the hagiography also mean certain erasures and inscriptions? Because erasures are also inscriptions of other things as well. So like in Oppenheimer's case, like. We don't get to hear the people who were living in that desert area. It becomes more an expression of a frontier. And of course, we hardly get to see those who were impacted directly. So the way I see here is that geography has, of science has very deep roots in the acceptance of science to which, let's be very clear, historians of science have played very important role, for example, George Sarton being among the most important of those.
0: Yes. And I wonder if that's sort of part of like inseparable in some ways from, you know, telling a good story, right? Telling a good story requires that you have a hero, whether that's going to be a tragic hero or, you know, uh, a perfect hero or, you know, or or whatever type of story you're going to tell. Does that kind of, you know, uh, set up, set us up to fall into that trap? of you know, reinforcing ideas about the importance of the individual in science, as opposed to the importance of the whole scientific community. And Yang-Ying, it, it looks like you have something to say.
1: Sure. Uh, so I'll, uh, actually, I was going to follow up really quickly on Amit's point, but I'll uh, answer that in um, relation to your, uh, your, your latest question about heroes. And so one thing I want to say, like, uh, following Amit's point about the relationship between, like, science, or in particular, Western science and its re- utilization by, by the state. And one of the reasons that, that Qian um, has played such an important role in, uh, in how his image was being uh, crafted and, and being propagandized by the Chinese government is in his his um, relationship with the United States, that his authority and scientific credibility is very much based on his prominence, his education and his work in the US. On the other hand, because he was so mistreated by the US government, he and he could also Advertise on that part as a way to present the United States as this like evil right, adversarial regime, and and also because of his long life and long career that he um and that he played prominent roles in different stages of how the Chinese state and its really, and its primary political ideology and its um presentation of science has shifted. So we see how um before in the earlier era, Chen was using his landing scientific authority for. Uh, to certain things, such as like ludicrous, uh, ludicrous crop production during the Great Leap Forward. And even up to the 1980s, he was still uh, writing articles about how we should use Marxist ideology to. Um, Guide guide scientific research and how modern cosmology is um, is incorrect because it is contrary to Marxist doctrine. And then, but then later, especially in the nineties, this was when really, in in the time when I was growing up, when when became this kind of. Really, um, singular figure as, as this, um, and uh, as this role model for, for, for scientists of his generation, but also as a role model for, for the younger generation was really when Marxist and, um, communist ideology had lost its mass appeal because of Mao era excesses. And then after the bloody crackdown of Tiananmen and when patriotism became the primary ideological underpinning for the Chinese government to claim its legitimacy. And then Qian became this embodiment of a quote, Unquote patriotic scientific hero, and so this is where I'm uh, coming to uh, uh, Matt, your question about about heroes, right? And actually, I have a question for for David. I think I guess he'll probably speak next. Is uh, when I watched on uh, Oppenheimer, my sense was oh, I could see that uh, the, the film director and the, uh, the the production team was really trying to convey a moral ambiguity, but um, but I really didn't necessarily think it is achieving that goal and and one thing that k- keeps coming to mind was this book that I just read by Christina sharp ordinary notes where she wrote about her own experience um visiting the holocaust uh, the, 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 uh, the the Holocaust museums and the Nazi documentation uh, centers in Germany and which were of course not trying to present any heroic sense um, but I will um, I will quote here that uh, she said we were convinced that depending on where one's this memorialization would actually attract people to Nazism, that these objects function as memorabilia, a memorialization not of the wounded, but of the perpetrator. And we saw in them not the condemnation of the Nazis, but their glorification. And, And that was the sense... Uh, where I keep feeling these words echo in my mind when I was watching Oppenheimer was when it was trying to portray the horrors of the film and even the psychological damage it's inflicting on its built creators, it was actually also creating a sense of glorification even simply by the spectac the spectacle, the spectacular effects of the technology itself. And I was wondering whether David uh, has thoughts on that and uh, any of you yeah.
2: I, I agree. Thanks. So I'll answer that, and then I had a question for Matt, which I'll sort of put at the end, um, which is, um, I agree completely. Right, and I, I mentioned this in my review, but couldn't really didn't really space to develop it. Like one of one directorial choice that is really emblematic of of that for me is that Nolan chooses not to show any victims of Hiroshima, right. We do not, you know, so it's almost like the only victims we see are the scientists themselves who are tortured allegedly, right, by what they've done. Right. And that that is a really different message, right? You know, than if you actually see the destruction instead of just seeing the scientists seeing the destruction. You know, and I and I think you're absolutely right that that that, that really um that contributes to the glorification. Look, these men not only won a war, but they felt bad about it at the same time, right? You know, without really causing a viewer to reckon with, even if they don't reject, you, you don't necessarily have to reject what the U.S. did in order to reckon with the cost of it. But the movie, I don't think, forces a viewer to do either of those things. So I agree completely with that. Um, and then just hopefully this isn't too much of a non sequitur um, but I did want to ask the, a question about hagiography to you, Matt, particularly because one of the things that interests me about Goodnight Oppie is the central character is a machine, right? So it's going to have a similar narrative structure in some ways of following the life of a single entity, but you can't invest it with the same kind of hero worship if you can do that at all and i wonder if that may give it a more natural turn away from hagiography and that it makes you see the collective behind it or if it's just a different kind of hero worship
0: i think it's a sort of um a combination of of what you're describing so you know on the one hand it does become the story of this heroic rover um whose story you're presented with in this movie. And by the end, you know, I think you're meant to love that rover as much as the people who worked with it loved it because you've, present, you've been presented with its story as they see it from, you know, being just an idea to being, uh, you know, a, a thing that you have worked for decades on, sitting on top of an explosive rocket to making the, the treacherous journey through space to Mars, surviving landing, and then, you know, exceeding everyone's expectations and roving uh, around for, for many years. And so uh, and when when they describe the rover and as it ages, they're basically describing it in the terms that we would use to talk about a loved one who is aging and losing some of their capabilities. And they make direct comparisons to, for example, uh, their grandma. One, one of the engineers talks about their grandmother and the onset of Alzheimer's to talk about how the Opportunity Rover was losing its memory and not as functional anymore, but yet they were finding ways to keep the mission going. But then there is that team aspect, right, that when they mourn the loss of Appy at the end, and Steve Squires, who was the principal scientist on the mission, makes this point. They're mourning that rover, but they're also mourning that sort of experience of working together and of having that community that they belonged to, you know, they have to turn the lights out on the mission, not just on on the rover. So there is that team aspect, but there's still a kind of hagiographic, uh, if you want to put it that way, portrayal of the heroic rover and its, you know, ultimate sacrifice dying on Mars, never to return to Earth. Even though, you know, the rover has no sentience of its own, um, we still end up mourning it um, in the same way or similar to how the scientists and engineers mourn it. Amit, I see you have your your hand up. Uh, I just want to briefly go back
3: to what uh, David and Yang Yang also mentioned with Oppenheimer. One of the things which uh, sort of concerned me or rather made me think harder was that not just what is the moral ambiguity, that is, what are the tropes that are used, how it is represented, whether it is true or not, but what does that moral ambiguity do? And I thought in the film, in some ways, very fascinatingly, it resolves the moral dilemmas, or rather, I would say moral responsibilities with regards to Oppenheimer's thing, both with regards to the impact of the bomb, like the way it goes into Truman, or the political, it goes to straws, and even in his personal life. So in a sense, it is a fascinating aspect, and what I wish to just wanted to highlight briefly is that, that the film goes into a lot of details, and I've seen a lot of discussion on how these dilemmas are very important for us to have rather than seeing in resolute ways. But what they're not discussing often is that whether ambiguity can also become a very effective strategy at both hagiography as well as propelling certain questions to be out. Because very often when I'm seeing, apart from a few critiques, they are not going into some of these other aspects, so to say. But I wanted to come back to uh, what Matt, you talked about, because in the field of science technology studies, where much of my work is, Mm There's this so much celebration of this object-centered ontology, as though the history of the object, including its agency, could talk in ways which is by necessity disruptive of the human-centered discourse. What you showed to us very well in some ways through your review and you discussed even here, that, well, it is not just that the object could be anthropocentric as something. But the historicization itself can fall into these uh, kinds of same kind of, I would say, pitfalls, lacina or excesses. Do you see that, uh, like with OP, for example, there was a possibility to go beyond? Because that—that that is in the sense of go beyond a human centered uh, kind of, I mean, following on David's question as well here.
0: Yeah, and and I think that um, it's sort of a a pitfall of the way that rover missions and other robotic missions as well, um, but maybe to a lesser extent, are are covered for public consumption. So by journalists, but also by NASA's own public relations office, they tend to talk about what the rover accomplishes as opposed to the people who are working with the rover. And um, they also you know, as of you know, not that long ago, um, you know, have started Twitter accounts in the voice of the spacecraft. So the spacecraft seems to be delivering information directly to the public as opposed to it going through the channels that it that all of the data does go through. I mean, a great example of that is the way that opportunities, last words were presented to the public, right? It did not say, what is it? It's it's getting dark, and I, I I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's cold and it's getting dark, or something like that. Um, that's the way that data was interpreted and then put out to the public. But the rover doesn't speak in first person. The rover doesn't use words like that. It sends back data, and that data is interpreted and then it's sent to the public. Um, so you know, it's a uh, it's it's part of how the rovers are presented, and it's it's. Um, a great public relations uh, you know, technique that NASA uses. It's worked really well for them in engaging people in what rovers do and, and all of that, but it really erases that human dimension of all of the hundreds of people that are involved in that mission and what makes that data uh, accessible. Since I already mentioned that I think in Opportunity or in Goodnight Oppie, they've left out sort of the larger context of the relationship between space exploration and military and national security. Uh, why don't we switch to that topic for for a moment? Because all of these films um, it, unless, you know, they've admitted it, like Goodnight Oppie, address this relationship between science and the state in different ways. Um, you know, what messages? what messages are we left with from these films about that relationship and whether it's a good or bad thing that science has been so involved in um, building military technologies or bolstering uh, national prestige or however we want to uh, connect it to the state. What do we think about these films and how they present that? I mean, your, your, uh, your film is somewhat different um, because uh, we, we see directly this appeal to the state for money uh, in, in one scene and the tech, Tactics that are used by the eminent astronomer to get the money from the state. Can you speak to that a little bit? That has uh, been an important
3: concern uh, all the while. I mean, for everybody. Like, how do you get the funding and how do you go about using the funding? So, in the, the case of this film, the astronomer wanted to prove that there are alien microbes. And so he needed funds for the uh, basically the setup. And because uh, it was not found out, he was really worried that, that that would lead to an ending of the funding. And so he cooks up the data and that is the fraud for which he is found. So one, in this film, as well as other places we see, there is an immediate relationship with the state that is there through defense funding or some other kinds of funding as well in a wide variety of ways. There is also this other element that Gyan Prakash, for example, talked about in his book, Science as the Reason of the State, wherein it becomes imbued in the developmental programs and other things which are there. And I feel one of the things which attracted me to this film was that how science becomes the reason of the society in some ways, wherein what starts happening is that in spite of this criticism, how people actually are celebratory of this and all. So what I am implying here is that sometimes when we critique the the science state relationship, uh, we will also have to take into account that how deeply ingrained and embedded it has become at so many levels. And so the state part, how should we fit in in this? Should we see it as an aberration? Or should we see it as just one other tra- trajectory that is there in this kind of a, the world that of relationship of science and society state that we are living in?
0: Oh, Yang Yang, I was just about to to ask you, um, and it seems like you're ready to to talk. Um, is you know in in the Cheng biopic, you know, it, there's very it's very explicitly about obligation to the state, right? That um, your, your uh, protagonist feels a very strong, um, you know, sense of obligation and to, to the, you know, to his own people and to his nation. Um, but even before that, he was working for the state interests of the United States. Um, so, you know, how do, what do you make of that, that sort of switch that he makes in his career? Obviously, it's, you know, there's a lot of context around it, but um, yes, please speak to that.
1: Yeah, so so, so in answer to your question, I think I think in Chen in real life, we we do not know how he really felt about these things. But from from all the evidence we, we saw, was that he was very much set on staying in the U.S. and just continuing to work on on the type of work he can do in the U.S. Not necessarily out of any particularly ideological sense, but just out of like a techn a, a technological curiosity. And it was really because of the McCarthy era and and, and his um the the mistreatment he felt from the U.S. government um, that that he essentially felt that he needed to go back to China because his pride was wounded. And I think that the question that lingers was: I don't think I don't want to make this kind of comparison to say uh, comparative victimhood. Which government he treated him worse? Because I think very few governments in the history of the world treated their own people worse than than, than <laughs> some years in the Mao era. Um, but um, but but then when he did go back to China he didn't have any more options. So he had to conform himself and actually make himself a model, a Chinese Communist Party member when he was a victim of communist accusations in the U.S. that derailed his career. And and so, so in, in this uh, in, in this sense, uh, this is Qian in real life and the film and and what is makes this film and any kind of biography of Qian so difficult in the Chinese political context is this truth cannot be fully told because he is a man that embodies so many contradictions. So there needs to be certain ambiguities or certain omissions or flat out fabrications to present this version of Qian as a consistent Patriotic hero, even though for someone of Chen's age, he was born in the final year of the Qing Empire. He lived and worked and went to the U.S. on a Boxer Indemnity Scholarship as a citizen of the Republic of China, and then came back and then contributed to the People's Republic, where uh, where the ruling state of China changed its borders, shifted, and a lot of things changed. So, what is actually China in Chen's sense is an open question as well. But then, on um, coming to the relationship between science and state, there are actually um, certain analogies I might draw between uh, the changes and biopic, the film, and open Oppenheimer, the film. Right. There are um there are this idea of this there is an alien threat, whether it's the Nazis trying to build a bomb, or the in the Chinese sense, it becomes easier because it was like, oh, because the United States already has it and already used it. And and also there is this uh a interesting scene, which is almost, uh, almost similar, but artistically very, very different. Um, in the sensors, there is a colleague uh, in the Oppenheimer film is, um, Ai Rabi, and then in Chen Sen film is this character, um, inspired by the Chinese nuclear and space scientist uh, Guo Yonghuai, who expressed moral objections to it. And, and in, in the Oppenheimer film, of course, it is very understandable why it was included. I was actually somewhat surprised I was included in the Chinese film at all that why uh, and why why this note of moral uh, very fleeting note of moral objection needs to be included, whether it was a certain an expression of conscience on the production team or it was trying to redeem the innocence of the chinese nation state that is still some it is not this kind of uh, trying to contrast itself uh, with the United States and I would end on the note that I hope we would have a bit of time to discuss is the, the relationship between science and state in both Oppenheimer film and the Chan film um, is uh, embodied in a very, very gendered way that um, the science and technology is being used to uh, facilitate this patriarchal ideology and the sense of what is safety, what is security, what is protection is being uh, interpreted through this very patriarchal lens.
0: Yeah, that's actually the the next topic I wanted to get to was was gender and and how it's presented in these films in terms of both the gendering of science, but then also, um, you know, the the ways that um, gender is depicted in the relationships that the individual uh, scientists uh, or protagonists have. So, David, um, if you can uh, speak to that first, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff going on with. Oppenheimer and and his relationships with women, but then there's also, um, you know, the sort of larger sense of the the uh, Los Alamos campus being a very male dominated uh, uh, facility, and also physics itself being a very male dominated field. Right, right.
2: Which they, yeah. I mean, it's really. I mean, so the the portrayal of of Jean Tatlock, his mistress and ex fiance, and I mean, is really. I mean. I mean, problematic doesn't seem to quite capture it, but I'm searching for another word. I mean, her her function is, in the narrative is basically, you know, as this kind of like, you know, right, as the communist woman who tempts Oppenheimer away from the bomb, you know, you know away from his duties and gets him into trouble, right? You, you know, and it's, I mean, it's really, it's, you know, and I mean, certainly, I don't think of all the people who have like, appropriate upperman story, No, one's not the only one to do this. I mean, that's how the story is usually told. You know, um, but there is certainly, um, I mean, I guess, you know, on my second time watching it, I saw a little bit more sort of like nuance in, the, in Kitty's role in this, right? E- even though it fits stereotypes in a lot of ways as well. So yeah, so I don't, I don't think the film deals with, gender in a particularly interesting way i mean there is that sort of like you know um you know somewhat heavy-handed moment where there's the female scientist lily i f- forget uh last name who's like who says like, like that they, they, they try to like take her away from potentially dangerous work because oh it'll affect your reproductive systems and then she you know has the joke back about well why why mine and not yours right but it's you know but so, so I think that is maybe Nolan's attempt to sort of like at least signal the masculinity of that world. But I don't think it is really, I mean, it's barely acknowledged and certainly not addressed in any kind of a, in in, in depth in any way. So those are my initial thoughts there.
0: Yeah, And I mean, in, in your film, it seems like, you know, uh, this is also reflected somewhat in the the caste system in terms of that different forms of masculinity are expected at different levels. And at the romantic level, as you point out, sacrifice is part of that sort of masculine scientific uh, um, characterization. Can you speak more about that? Yeah. So to first to
3: follow up, as David said here, like, and to build on it, that. Uh, and to what Yang Yang also asked, that we also have to see that in the very depiction of science or practice of science as a boys' club, is it and the masculine play of it, even though it may not directly deal with gender, but the patriarchal exclusion is built into it. So there is an explicit case which is there. But at the same time, this blindness, and this is where we have to be careful that these erasures are themselves reflective of consolidation of the patriarchal masculine. In the film uh, that I reviewed, like the serious men, so the female characters, one is uh, the wife of personal assistant uh, to the astronomer and she is always portrayed as somebody who does not know much who is not understanding even why it is important for the son to succeed in a certain way so there is a role which is at best a mediator or facilitator in fact this was best displayed in uh, chen's uh, like the film on chen for example that the wife like eventually talks of in the end that okay i am contributing you to the world in this case it so one is that character. The other is a fellow scientist with the astronomer whose name is Oparna. And in the film briefly alludes to that, that they were having an affair. And basically, she helps him to fudge the data. So what you start seeing here is making the, 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 the female an accomplice without providing even a place of having a full character in a certain way. So the gender is, so to say, so much on display through its absence, like as such, which is like we see here and the reinforcement of like the genius, for example, this arrogant genius that the astronomer plays out. And in many ways we see in Oppenheimer and we see in Chen too, very much like, even though it may not be expressed in uh, in Chen's case as abrasive way, maybe in linguistic terms, but at the same time, the the masculine play of genius is so much at play. And in the film that I reviewed, the young kid, 10-year-old, he tries to follow that. He would start saying, like, if he wanted to respond, he will say, I don't want to respond to primitive minds or things like that. So there is this, it's a very fascinating thing, particularly in these three films, uh, even with the Oppie one, to an extent, but it is very striking how gendered, patriarchal, masculine the whole display is.
0: Yeah, I'd say that even in Goodnight Oppie, there are some moments that express a certain form of scientific masculinity, even though the people who were interviewed um, you know, it's a, a very good mix of men and women and people from around the world and different backgrounds, which speaks actually to good work that NASA has done to, um, you know, find gender parity and diversity over the years in some very um, successful programs that they've run. But, um, you know, there are those moments where, uh, for example, Steve Squires, who I mentioned before is the principal scientist on the mission, talks about himself and the rover mission in the terms of, you know, that kind of heroic 18th, 19th century uh, explorer uh, who is willing to sacrifice for their science and wants to, doesn't want to work on stuff that's been worked on before. They want to find new peaks. They want to uh, discover new places. And for Squires, he feels like he has to go to Mars in order to discover a new place. And he wants to be that type of explorer. Um, Yang Yang, you, you have your hand up. I, I think you want to continue the discussion.
1: Uh yeah, so actually I do have a question for you, Matt, on uh, along these lines. But I'll uh, first comment quickly about the gender dimensions in in the Chan in the Chan film. Actually, I was going to say really quickly to to David that I felt uh, the the Gene Tatlock character was just like very much the embodiment of like a siren. <laughs> it, totally, <laughs> it, it, it was it, it was it was it was so wild, and and also the. Um, and, and, uh, and, and what is, uh, what is interesting was, uh, um, how one might contrast that with how the, the primary woman in the Chen xue film is embodied, um, because as this, uh, good woman, um, uh, Jiang Ying, who actually had a very, very, uh, uh, modern, <laughs> In in, in a way, she was a very modern woman because she grew up very, very privileged. She lived and studied in Europe and studied Western opera for a decade before returning to China. And so the film opens with her giving a performance uh, as this young, hot uh, opera singer in Shanghai, and then ends with this particular scene that I want to mention: is how she talked about uh, she has no regrets in her life because she married, even though she sacrificed her career for chance. And then she gave this quote, which um, by all accounts is a fabrication attributed to Winston Churchill's mother, who allegedly said on her deathbed that I have no regrets in life because I gave birth to Winston Churchill for Great Britain. And now when I when I this line actually wasn't didn't come from the film itself. It's actually quite popular line in, in, in China attributed to Winston Churchill's mother, which is fascinating because if only people knew who Winston Churchill's mother was, as this socialite who had three husbands and many lovers and didn't really raise Winston Churchill... Uh, isn't really this embodiment of a conventional <laughs> good mother and, or good woman that the Chinese uh, state or society wants to promote. However, what is important here, which is really fascinating, is who Winston Churchill's mother was, was not important at all, as in who Jiang Ying was or what her aspirations were. Important, or uh, were, were not important at all, because the important part is the man, the most important man in their lives, and they and their characters and their image can be molded in a way, as in just for the creation or the facilitation of this masculine hero figure. And then, so so what comes to the question I have for Matt is what is interesting is like, well, David also mentioned this, right? Like, of uh, we know that in 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 the Manhattan Project, scientists they they decide that if the bomb is a dot, it would be named a girl and so if it's a boy then it means it's a working bomb and and i do not know enough about the history of rover or different space probe missions in the u.s to know but i was very very disturbed by the way how an opportunity and and spirit were uh always referred to in, in as as uh, female and uh, and also uh, And also I note this particular choice in the film was their voice is embodied by Angela Bassett this iconic black woman with a distinct voice and and I saw so I feel the, uh, the 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 robots were not only anthropomorphized but they were also particularly gendered and in a way ethnicized or racialized and I was curious uh matt what are your thoughts on that especially when that distinct um, black woman is a distinct black woman's voice is uh, is being placed into a scene as you mentioned right even though the film made a specific effort to find diverse voices whenever it pans to the whole laboratory, it's still a very white male-dominated environment.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. It is still a very white male-dominated environment. And, um, you know, to add to that, the, this idea that, that Angela Bassett um, is the voice of, of opportunity, um, the very first U.S. rover Sojourner, um, which arrived at Mars in 1997, was named Sojourner after Sojourner Truth, right? The African American abolitionist and advocate of, of women's rights. Um, and it was named uh, through a naming contest that NASA ran, um, where middle middle school students were asked to provide names and reasons why the rovers should be uh, named after their favorite heroines. So they were specifically asked for, you know, uh, for women's names, um, and so. The flight spare that we have on display at the Air and Space Museum is named Marie Curie because Marie Curie was uh, the other name that was selected in this contest. Um, and I think that that connects to a longer history in in the U.S. and possibly Europe as well of naming technologies and considering them um, female. And, and I don't know why that is, why craft have been traditionally named after women, uh, but that has carried forward into the naming of spacecraft. Although, you know, NASA has tended not to uh, name that many spacecraft after individuals. Instead, you know, with the other rovers, they've been named uh, Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity, Perseverance, these sort of ideals as opposed to people's names. But the new um, uh, ESA rover, Rosalind Franklin, uh, that should go to Mars in, in the coming years is a going to be the next example of a rover named after a woman. So, you know, there is that interesting tradition that seems to be kind of at odds with the male domination of the science, or maybe it speaks to the male domination of the science and this desire to control uh, a a technology and and name it after a woman. So, you know, it's I don't think it's received a a good deal of analysis. (laughs) I mean...
3: So, uh, just to add to like what you people are talking here, I also felt that, I mean, for example, the way like females are used here, as has been already pointed out, either to facilitate the careers of the people or as mediators, which allow either absolution, like in the so even when the discussion is with regard to the female reproductive organ, it almost seemed to me that okay, we are aware of the gender issue. So the film is sort of trying to play into that. That's it. In fact, interestingly, with Tatlock's character, one of the interesting, fascinating part I found, which has caused a lot of controversy, particularly in India, wherein she asks him to uh, read the the, 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 the sloka or the verse from Gita while having sex, I thought it actually, in a playful way, it satirizes the... The, the, the way, for example, Oppenheimer used to go about like showing off as genius, it's quite evident that he did not know Gita well, because there's the reference to Vishnu rather than Krishna. So I think by doing it that, making it banal and playful, I thought Tatlock character is sort of disrupted, that because it's well known that Oppenheimer would always try to show this. There are these, like, so many writings after writing that how actually like, oh, Hindus were better in this, or the fact that Gita has got it or something. So I thought Tatlock's character at one level was a way to sort of, I wouldn't say absolve him for his personal commitment as well as the political transgression. But another way, it was playful in terms of like like make fun of him. I thought that that particular act sort of made fun of the way he used to display his genius. I just wanted to See that, yeah. And David?
2: Yeah, so that's interesting. I have to start to mull that over. I I, I was going to throw in a different... I mean, fundamentally, I agree that, like, everything that we're saying about gender in these films and depictions of women, I mean, in Oppenheimer, you basically have, like, you know, on one hand, this communist temptress, on the other hand, like, the alcoholic wife who can't take care of her kids, right? I mean, it's just... Right, there's... they're, They're basically... Women only show up in Oppenheimer's life as, like, problems or disruptions in some way, right? But the one moment that changes that a little bit is that Kitty Oppenheimer, when she's called to testify in the hearing, right, she is about the only person who testifies in his behalf. And this is actually somewhat true in the real life hearing as well, who sort of sees the game for what it is and calls out Roger Robb and the board for like I mean, the grammar they're using and the shape of the questions. And she essentially is the only one who doesn't accept the terms that Strauss has laid out, right? Sort of saying like, I can't tell you, I can't tell you, I don't have the exact quote. Like she's like, I can't tell you, you know, when he stopped being a communist because I challenge your presumption that he ever was one, right? And so that, you know, it's an interesting moment and sort of like the only moment where you see, her having, I think, any real agency or, frankly, ability to, like, suss out a situation better than he can. So, you know.
0: yeah. Well, we, we have time for a couple of closing thoughts, and I see that Amit and Yang Yang both are raising their hands. So, Yang Yang? Sure.
1: Um, I'll, I'll just uh, say quickly as a follow-up to to the Jean's catalog, <laughs> uh, uh, sex scene, and actually what I found interesting was, That scene, the way I interpret it is if the, if the bomb or, or the missile becomes embodiment of masculine power, then in a way, in that sex scene, it is also Making land as gendered as female, and and so so there is this metaphoric sense in it, and so this probably is a good segue to a closing thought: is that I felt we didn't have a chance to discuss uh, the the ideas of of not just gendered boundaries, but ethnic and racial boundaries, and the ideas of colonialism and imperialism in in these projects, and and of course. Uh, uh, an analogy um, between the Chen uh, Chi-Sen's work and the film itself, and also Oppenheimer, is, um, for example, the primary nuclear test site in China is Lop Nur, which is part of the traditional Uyghur homeland. And as David uh, mentioned earlier, right, the, um, the Oppenheimer film didn't show the uh, the bombing victims in Japan, but it also did not really show the victims of nuclear tests in the United States, or how these, um, uh, or the idea of uh, the the context of native dispossession that is um, that that is behind these um, uh, these work and so 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 I, I think I think this is um, in a way also reflected in the ideas of space exploration as this kind of pristine virgin space territory that can um, be open for uh, for continued uh, masculine conquest and so that is the note I want to end on here
0: I, I don't think I could have said it better. Um, yeah, I totally agree. There is this um, you know, con- continuation of coloniality and the way we speak about space and colonizing it and settling it that really connects um, not just metaphorically but in very real historical ways to that history of you know, colonialism and Western expansion. So um, thank you for articulating that. And then Amit, you have the last word. Well, I think it's been very well put, and I'm glad that we are
3: also ending on this because uh, with regard to coloniality, you talk of this, that one of the ways, for example, the European colonialism has been projected as an exploration. And what it does is that it hides so much of the history uh, as such, like in, in the like your review, you talk about that how the exploration of Mars was like, similar to, as you explained, exploration of the earth but that exploration of the earth was a colonial project like what and it was not just by itself and so I, I i think it is important i really think it is important for us maybe just to highlight this that how this relationship of the science colonial including with gender and other things they play out it the present day in a wide variety of ways including in the way science is celebrated and accepted across the world And I think it'll be important for us to see the coloniality at uh, so many different levels. And I'm really glad that we were able to uh, bring it out on so many different ways. On a lighter note, if I can just take one second here, I felt that uh, Kitty's actually character when she was speaking in that eloquent way, given that kind of a power, so to say, it allowed basically sort of absolving, very eloquently absolving Oppenheimer from his communist uh, responsibilities, saying that, so one sentence was like striking that how he was trying to, the reason why he donated the money was this was the way to reach out the poor. So it was very interesting again here that given an eloquent place, a eloquent characteristic, that also is with just that same role of sort of Serving the purpose for
0: Oppenheimer. That's it. Great. Well, thank you, Yang Yang, David, Amit, uh, for joining this discussion. And uh, thank you, Babak, for being the man behind the glass uh, producing the episode. And we have to end with a quick quiz question, as is tradition for these podcast episodes. So I'm going to throw out the question that should be easy for anyone who's seen the Oppenheimer movie or maybe even hasn't. Uh, what is the you know, possibly deadly prank that Oppenheimer attempts to <laughs> to pull at at the Cavendish laboratory.